are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Each week, a writer in the Joseph Campbell Foundation community contributes an essay interpreting a mythic theme in a featured work from Joseph Campbell. This little blast of mythology that we call a myth blast forms the centerpiece of our weekly newsletter, which also contains curated selections from our archives. Go to jcf.org slash subscribe to receive this weekly email from us that will help you explore myth, storytelling, and the work of Joseph Campbell. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. And today we're listening to a lecture Campbell gave on the heroine's journey. As is often the case with archived audio lectures in our possession, uh, there was no identifying information available for this lecture, other than the year of the recording, which was 1981. I find this lecture to be an interesting one, as Professor Campbell is attempting to elaborate on his idea of the hero's journey to include what he thinks the experience might be like for women and what it means for them using C.G. Jung's seminal work, Symbols of Transformation, as a reference. I wouldn't be surprised if you found some of his speculations to be problematic. And frankly, I think that's okay if you do. Remember, Campbell was born in 1904. And as I mentioned last month, he's old enough that as a child he saw Wilbur Wright fly over Riverside Drive. He lived nearly his entire life in the atmosphere of unquestioned and unchallenged male privilege. In this lecture, six years before his death, I have to give him credit for trying to make his theoretical perspectives a bit more useful for women. That said, I don't think he was entirely successful. But isn't that the essence of being human? We don't always get it right, but we keep trying. And that continuing effort, that trying to get it right, sincerely trying to be better. That's worth a lot, I think. When that kind of effort is present in a life, we're more inclined, I hope, to have some small regard for human frailty. My JCF colleague and friend Stephen Geringer has written a lovely new book regarding Campbell called Myth in Modern Living, a collection of Stephen's essays over the years that take a deeper look at common questions about Campbell and his theories about myth. I might add that you can receive this book in paperback as our gift to you for a donation of $25 to the Joseph Campbell Foundation. For a $50 donation, you will receive the gift in hardback. You can find Myth and Modern Living in the gift shop of the Joseph Campbell Foundation's website at jcf.org. In his foreword to this book, Stephen writes, quote, As you read, it helps to bear in mind that his speech patterns reflect the tenor of his times. There are occasions where his phrasing sounds old-fashioned, even socially insensitive by today's standards. The terms man and mankind were thought to refer to all humans without regard to gender and without conscious awareness of how that default setting devalues women. 
Stephen mentions listening to a talk Campbell gave late in his life in which he was making a conscious effort to use the word primal rather than primitive when referring to indigenous cultures. Some of his friends in the Native American community had expressed to him how painful it was to hear themselves referred to as primitive. And Campbell was concerned and empathetic enough to try to make meaningful changes to his languaging. I don't believe Campbell was intentionally misogynistic, nor was he a racist. Rather, I think that he sometimes did speak in uncomfortably broad generalizations that were influenced by the culture that shaped him. But he always seemed to try to meet individuals from all walks of life in a sincere, open-hearted manner. We are all shaped by the conscious and unconscious forces at work on the cultures in which we live. And knowing that, perhaps we can hold some small measure of grace as we listen to and evaluate the ideas of men and women who have long since shuffled off this mortal coil and lived in a very different world from the one we presently inhabit. As we have seen countless times, regardless of the era, their ideas can continue to have force and effect in the contemporary world. That's not to say, however, we should simply give a pass to problematic behaviors or words simply because they were uttered long ago. That, too, would be a problematic fallacy to indulge. If something gives us pause or is troubling us, we should examine it and try to understand it as best we can with the moral reasoning available to us in this present moment. I think it's a good thing to try to see Joseph Campbell as a human being who may not always have seen the world accurately due to the distorting lens of the cultural and societal conventions of his time. Human beings are incredibly complicated creatures, and our reasoning, judging, discriminating processes are at least equally as complex. And recognizing that complexity may serve a palliating or even a cathartic purpose in those cases when one is attempting to evaluate the work of another who lived at a different time or in a different place. Lastly, as you listen to this lecture, it's important to keep in mind that a fundamental point Professor Campbell makes is that his analysis of the examples presented in Symbols of Transformation can apply to anyone, be they male or female. In the final analysis, gender is not important at all. What's important is the inner process. So with that caveat, please enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1981 lecture on the heroine's journey. And immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and explore some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. Well, today I want to deal with aspects of the, well, what is called the visionary journey or the hero journey in, uh, in two uh, installments. Um, this morning, I want to deal with the psychological transformations of two women. One, an American woman in the 20s who went uh, to uh, be helped by Carl Jung, and another, an English woman in the uh, 40s. 
who uh, went to Gerard Adler, a Jungian analyst in London. Uh, and then the second uh, installment will be the Odyssey, which will give the, the male journey. The um, analogies will be, will be apparent, but the differences also. Now to get going on this um, woman's journey. The first one I'm going to show is the English woman in the 40s. No, not yet. I'm, I'm going to. Who uh, went, who was a um, secretary in Geneva in one of the uh, international institutes there. And when the Second World War came along, she had to return to London, or she did return to London, and then began to feel a claustrophobic uh, anxiety building up and went to Gerard Adler for help. And he has published the whole analysis in a book called The Living Symbol. I have taken simply the, the picture sequence that she brought forth, and uh, the whole trip comes out pretty nicely there. The other woman was an American, and both of these were not married. And in their, the, the English woman seems to me to have been around in her 40s or early 50s, and the American woman later on. The American woman um, felt life drying up. And this was in the 20s, uh, when there was a kind of uh, expatriate tradition for people in the United States, all living in Paris. But instead of going to Paris, she went to uh, Zurich to work with uh, Jung. And that's rather surprising, because very, very little was known of Carl Jung in the 20s here. I think there was only one book translated by an American analyst named Hinkle. It was his Wandlungen und Symbole der Libido. That's the one that uh, separated Freud from him. And it was translated as um, uh, Psychology of the Unconscious. That book has been retranslated in the collected works under the title Symbols of Transformation. And it's, it's Jung's key work. It's the one that uh, initiated his um, writing career, really. The um, American woman went to, to Jung. He was, as it were, the wise man on the mountaintop in Switzerland, the only civilized country in the world, uh, with the uh, European chaos going round and round, and it standing in the center, and he on top, the wise old man. And uh, on the way, uh, she had the thought um, that she would visit the homeland of her mother. Now, that's a perfect mythological thing. You go through the mother to the father. You go through Mary to God, the father, and so forth and so on. And when she got, got where her mother was born, I think it was Alsace, she found the landscape enchanted. She was so fascinated by it all. There was a mother projection in there. And uh, so she wanted to paint it. Well, she wasn't much of a painter. Anyhow, she bought herself a smock and uh, easel and uh, canvases and things like that. And she's one of those people for a while there that you see on countrysides painting the landscape. When she had got that into or out of her system, she went up the mountain to Carl Jung, and Jung said, well, what have you been doing? And she said, painting. And he said, well, you've got your equipment. Paint me a picture of how you feel. And that was the beginning of the story. I'm going to start these two stories uh, by showing a few uh, pictures that uh, women have produced of themselves 
And uh, that will introduce my thesis, which is that women tend to associate themselves with the vegetable world, the trees, the flowers, and things like that. And you'll see uh, it, 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 it runs continuously through both of these systems. Okay, would you just give us a start here? Here's one. And you can see the feeling of the, the organism breaking up through this plaster world that has been applied by the ego structure system. What did I do with that now? My little twinkler. Oh, it's up there. <coughs> Thank you. Now, this is just too bad. I suppose this woman had too many children or something like that. So uh, she was pulled back to Mother Earth again. Uh, and uh, the, uh, she never really got her own personal spiritual development. And this one, of course, is a calamity. And the whole world of the spirit and uh, thinking is just outside of her. I've met a many who, if they painted their picture, would be just about like that. Now this is the woman uh, whose first series, who's going to be the one of the first series. This she called the comfortable tree. <clears throat> this she called the uncomfortable tree, and it's a picture of what the problem was. Those birds are not perched on the tree, they're tugging it, so that there's this, this tension between the two, the, the roots and the uh, spiritual realm. Here you have the four functions, we're pulling in different directions. And these are not supporting that iron ring, they are in tension, pulling it in four directions. A kind of Ixian idea. Now I put this here because it gives you the clue to um, a mythological way of reading the problem. Ixian, who represents ego, went to Zeus represents the dynamic of nature, the creative power, and demanded of Zeus, Zeus's consort, Hera, for his mistress. This is the impudence of ego putting itself in the place of self. And that's the whole mess. And so Zeus simply tied him to a wheel. I mean, there's that stretch out, that tension, instead of harmonious operation and flings them up into the sky, and he goes rolling through the skies. Now, um, this whole problem of ego, it gets all messed up because of the delivery of oriental thinking to us. Using Freudian terms, I would say that uh, the oriental masters, at least as they deliver their messages to us, have not distinguished between ego and id. The uh, idea of annihilating ego is basic in these oriental systems. Uh, they identify ego with I want, but that's id. Freud defines ego as the reality function, the function that puts you in relationship to the actuality around you, not reality with a capital R, but reality, lowercase r, you in the world. This is the function that puts you in touch with here and now. It is the evaluating function, and consequently the creative function. When ego is eliminated, all you've got is id and superego, 
I want and what the society tells you you better do. And the character of a traditional oriental education is to wipe out the I want impulse and make you act and live in terms of the thou shalt system, dharma, your duty, the primary mask. There's no development of the antithetical. <clears throat> How do you rise in the scale of uh, reincarnation? By canceling I, ahankara, making the noise I. Consequently, when you ask an Oriental person a question having to do with contemporary life, particularly the Hindus, they come out with a whole uh, set of cliches from the Bhagavad Gita and everything else that has nothing to do with the situation. I feel very often as though I dropped 50 cents in a slot machine and got the jackpot. And the, uh, the coins are all marked, you know, 2000 BC, 1800 AD, and they have nothing to do with anything. <laughs> and uh, that means that the, the ego isn't operating. Sometimes I think that because of vegetarianism, there's brain damage. Uh, they, uh, at any rate, there, there is one function not functioning, and it's the ego function. And the, uh, the great characteristic of, uh, of the Western mind of making your evaluations, making your decisions, taking personal responsibility for the act, that's a different kind of maturity altogether. Um, of course, if you're acting in terms of the Dharma system and the instruction that you got, and that instruction having begun when you were about two minutes old and uh, never altered, you achieve enormous competence. This is true in the crafts and arts of the Orient. It's absolutely as though angels have done these things. Whereas uh, here, we in our sophomore or junior year say, oh, geez, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a dancer. And then you get these clumsy jobs that uh, we regard as art. The, um, the difference in, in this kind of competence in performance is enormous. But on the other hand, there is the development of true creativity and uh, the initiation of new movements. And it's that that I'm concerned with in what we're talking about here. But the ego must not be eliminated. The ego, on the other hand, must not take charge of the operation. It must become the servant of the dynamism of life. That's the whole sense of Goethe's Faust, Mephistopheles, who represents the ego system and can invent tools and invent explosives and invent anything to achieve what Faust wants to achieve cannot tell Faust what to achieve, nor can he give him the final satisfaction to this dynamism that enters the forest where there is no path and gradually is finding the realization of his own potentiality. This is Occidental. I want to make this because people keep saying that what the West has to give our machines and gadgets and what the Orient has to give our spiritual life, we've got a totally different spirituality. And this development of ego and the ego as a criticizing, evaluating, and facilitating function um, makes a totally different psychological structure from that which comes in these societies where the individual never makes a decision. They can't even decide as a kid whether he wants chocolate or vanilla or ice cream. The, the thing is given to him. The wife or husband are given, and so forth and so on. Such a person with no ego to speak of, something like one of those uh, 
balls they hang on Christmas trees, you know, if you touch them they fall apart. Uh, when it comes time for him to go into the forest and lose what's left of what wasn't an ego anyhow, he goes to a guru and the guru has a tiny little tack hammer and he, he said, no, no, will you break my ego for me? Yeah, I've come for that. Okay, bing, there goes the ego. The Western person goes to the same guru with an ego that looks like a rock. And, uh, and uh, so the guru sits there with a hammer and goes tap, and nothing happens. Tap. Then after 30 years of this, the person thinks there may be something wrong with me. I don't seem to be getting illumination. He's got illumination, all right, only he hadn't accepted it. Namely, that's not the way to do it. So anyhow, uh, this is the ego problem. When the ego is yields, and uh, the a passage of uh, leaving the body behind, that's that uh, sun-moon thing, passage from lunar to solar consciousness uh, takes place. Uh, this is a totally different kind of crucifixion from that of Ixion. And if uh, properly one remembers, as Jesus did, when Satan takes him up onto the pinnacle of Herod's temple and says, oh, you're so spiritual, just throw yourself down. He says, no, you shall not tempt the Lord, the God, uh, the Lord thy God. I'm a physical, and I'm going to walk down. Uh, that's the lunar consciousness as well as the solar. It's in your life here that your realization of the solar is to take place. Now, it's this double thing that we're going to try to work out. This woman has yielded now. One of her problems is she's not disengaged from her mother, even though she's well into her 50s. And consequently, she never achieved her own womanhood. And she was working in a male context. Her animus, as Jung calls it, was in action. And that she identified with her animus instead of with her womanhood. And uh, her problem is a real problem. It's not relating to man, but relating to her mother. Uh, here, however, she has yielded and realizes uh, that the, the male thing is out there. And you see, you, the, the relationship matter is what's coming to life, and in the middle of it is the cross. That's the same symbol we had earlier with relationship and the interaction of two. Well, after that, uh, this, this motif, the, the interrelation, the relationship is the center of the uh, operation. Relationship to something. You have to find out what it is, the psyche, that is the relationship problem. What is it that you're not properly related to. And when you find that, that's the, the real, uh, let's say, jewel discovery of your uh, quest into the dark. As soon as she had yielded this way, she began to think of her mother. And her mother, when she was a little girl, when this uh, woman was a little girl, had a garden of this classic kind, which is a perfect mandala form, the center and the four functions or the four directions. And she then began to have dreams <coughs> of herself helping her mother cultivate her mother's garden. Out of that, she moves into the chaos situation of eliminating the forms of her mother's structure, and out of that might come the rediscovery of her own. Now, Adler discusses each one of these at some length in this really fine book. He says, he, when he saw this, he did not know what that dog tooth pattern might mean around the edge. Until later, leafing undoubtedly through one of Jung's books, because this is where the next picture comes from, he found this picture 
And uh, this is a picture of the hermetic retort in alchemy <coughs> with the little homunculus getting born there. And the homunculus is the virgin birth. It's the, one's own personal spiritual life and trajectory. And uh, he, he saw that as probably what was implied here. Here is the field with something operating, some energy around and uh, affecting it, out of which the, the life will come. Following that, the woman's uh, undifferentiated field begins to differentiate. Uh, the only trouble with that walk through the garden is you can't get to it. It's and now begins her main series. This is a rather optimistic mandala. She thought she'd uh, work the thing out here. It uh, works in the three, three uh, directions. Uh, it's a picture of a three-dimensional uh, mandala. But there's something seriously missing. And what is seriously missing is the shadow. She's of earth. She's not an angel. And uh, what's she going to do with the shadow? The earth between sun and the shadow that it casts. And the moon is symbolic of that shadowed light. This is another alchemical picture. That was what was missing. She couldn't face it. Following that, she has to face it. She has a dream of coming down this great roadway to a cave. Now, she'd been in Switzerland, and exploration of caves is kind of weekend adventure sort of thing, so she was familiar with it. But um, she stood before this in her dream in fear. Uh, she, there was some kind of challenge implicit, namely that she should go in. But uh, she couldn't bring herself to do it. What you notice was there, there's the three, and the fourth is coming. And the fourth is mother. Now there follow two uh, dreams, two visions that uh, are, for me, extremely instructive and extremely important. She identified this as a Roman galley <laughs> beached on a Swiss mountaintop. The Swiss Navy, you've heard of it. The um, <laughs> broken oars, no water, rain coming, but protected from the rain. Here are her four people as, as witnesses, as tourists. This she identified as her classical education. It was of no use. Uh, you go to college, you learn this stuff, and you are as a tourist looking at it. You're not integrating anything. Now, isn't that true for so many of us? And uh, she was a well-educated woman. And in the English style, a generation or two generations ago, there would have been very strong classical accent of no use. This is of no use either. This is her religious education. Uh, her analyst, Adler, was a Jew, and the whole biblical background around her. And this comes up with the menorah and all that kind of thing. And there's her mother behind her here. And her animus, her active aspect. Women see themselves in their active aspect as the male. And this is well, I can say even biologically true, because what the male really is is the agent of the female. 
Female represents life, giving birth and all, and the male is the agent to prepare a field in which he can operate and, and help her to uh, achieve the aim of the whole biological system, which is her work. But when the woman identifies herself with that active rather than with the being aspect, uh, it's with, this, with a male image. So her male image is walking out. Neither her religious nor her classical secular education was doing her any good when it comes to a psychological crisis. And isn't that true for most of us? So she's got to do it herself. There she goes on the plunge. This is her next. Having realized that there's no help from this, no help from that, the symbols, the images, I'm a tourist looking at them. I learned them in school, I passed the exams, I can do this, I can do that, but it's doing nothing to me. She has to take the plunge herself. Now, interesting here is, as she goes down into the water, what she finds down there are birds, not fish. Uh, this is a motif that's going to come up later. The realization of what is above is below, what is below is above. Uh, the fish bird, the beyond the pairs of opposites. I remember in one of these sea parks, uh, there's one around the back of Oahu in Hawaii, um, they showed this marvelous uh, scene. You're watching a big tank from the side, uh, dolphins and all that sort of thing swimming around doing great stunts. And they let down a little group of, um, of penguins. And to see birds flying through the water is really marvelous. They're, in the, they're actually just flying. And uh, this is this image that this woman has. But you see what she's doing. So you get it. One, two, three, four, five, six. This is almost the Kundalini cycle down. And when she stops, strikes bottom, bang. The announcement of the rain, the storm, the refreshment. But that, that's a very interesting lightning bolt. What you immediately recognize, I'm sure, is Pingala and Ida, the, uh, the, two, the two nerves. Um, how much she knew, I don't know. But uh, these things are from the human imagination, which is uh, a constant in a certain sense. <clears throat> the boat comes down, and the Pingala is represented as lightning, the solar light, and the Ida as a serpent, a serpent power. It's all right there. Now look, the serpent power is taken over in its two aspects. One, the pelvic system holding her down, and the other, the aspiration with the golden germ in another form, that's the picture we saw yesterday time and time again of the serpent incubating the golden germ and yet at the same time holding her down. Note the tree. That's the same tree she had before. And that's the strain. The birds pulling her up, the roots pulling her down. <clears throat> when one takes note of the vocabulary, one might say, of one's own dream system. One finds that right from the beginning, the announcement of what you learned in the end was made, you know, uh, uh, but you didn't know how to read it. So then she gets the idea, well, there's something in me I've got to kill. This is my 
personal life or something like this. So the next is a, a little funeral scene. There's the tree. Note the tree is there, it's there, it's there. And there are four people, those four functions. Two of them associated with female and two with male. And this is her thinking now. The female represents the vital a life thing. One strews the seed, and the other pours the fertilizing water, and the male represents the light. Of course, she has a male analyst, and that uh, kind of conditions that system. point that I want to make, and this is an alchemical picture, is that I want to make the point that was made in some of those Kali figures dancing on Shiva. What you've got to kill is not only your lowest part, but also what you think of as your highest. Both your animal and your, your god have to be killed. So that, uh, because, as I've said a couple of times, your god is your final uh, bondage. You've got to break past it. The creativity comes in going past all these formulae that have been given you. And so the two have to be killed. And then in the tree above is the, uh, the pelican uh, that uh, nourishes its, its young on its own blood. Following this one of the serpent and the burial, there comes this which was so powerful she couldn't complete the picture. Uh, just drawing the eyes so excited her, she had to quit. Uh, the image was of an angelic uh, monster coming down with a lightning bolt. That's the lightning bolt again. Uh, and uh, stabbing her in the breast. When one sees that, one thinks, for example, of the uh, book of uh, Revelation, the woman clothed in light threatened by the great dragon. And in the book of Revelation, the woman is saved from the dragon. That should not happen. Uh, there must be the conjunctio. Here is a, a tanka. <laughs> uh, here is a, a tanka, a, a Tibetan piece, Chakrasambara Raja, the uh, all-embracing lord, and the um, Vajra Yogini, the thunderbolt holding uh, mistress of uh, illumination, the two in embrace. Here is the embrace. She was drawing this image and in working on the eye, realized it was that eye which had so excited her and that it was now not the eye of that monster demon, the demon lover, but of herself. So the two were one. She's getting a message here and uh, doesn't know that she's getting it. It was only in talking the thing out that this, this came through. So we have the image now of the celestial sphere, and that's a perfect Jungian mandala, actually, the four divided, uh, the four divisions and the center, the center being the eye, the awakened eye of Buddha consciousness, and so forth and so on. And now the next is an interesting one. And I give this alchemical picture to give the analog, the circling, 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 what Jung calls the circulation of the light. What is below, it should be above. What is above should be below, and is below, and is above, and so forth and so on. And then she did this. Now this is an inept picture because she didn't know anything about mechanics. 
she thought that that wheel turning would pull the boats in, but of course it wouldn't. That's just a technical mistake. The boats were loaded with fish. Now this image of the fish. Here we are in, uh, lost in the water world of our bio, of our of animal life. And the fishing motif is an old one. It goes back to Orphic thinking, and we get it in the Christian image of Jesus saying to the fishermen, I will make you fishes of men. Uh, the pulling of the fish out of the water is the removal of us from the uh, life of nature innocence into the world of light. It's represented in a number of um, uh, second and third century Christian lamps which show a fish with a human head coming out. It represents uh, Jonah coming from the whale, the uh, emergence into the light of spiritual consciousness. Following that, she had a, a fantastic image of an eagle. This is the bird of the solar light and Zeus flying down and breaking into five doves. Now the five are the central point, the four, and the dove represents love, so that the eagle of light becomes the love. But then the doves break into a swarm of starlings that flow in the form of a serpent over the uh, skyline of the city. And you can think of the fall of Lucifer here. They're falling down, and Lucifer, then the Lord of Light, actually enclosed in the satanic dark form. And this is the problem. All of life has the golden germ of illumination enclosed in the satanic serpent. Uh, let's get it out. Following that, she has a vision of a little man. You see him there in the, in the corner uh, with a portfolio going into a cave. And his name is Mr. Prentice Jones. This is, of course, her animus. Uh, that is she in uh, Switzerland. And Adler had the bright idea of saying, why don't you write the diary now of Mr. Prentice Jones' exploration of that cave? She goes in it by proxy. This is the cave that she was afraid to go into. And as the diary went on, uh, this comes as the final uh, dream. Namely, the water is down there, the water of life, down in the abyss, so that the next one gives her the water of life. This great lake at the bottom of the cave, that's supposed to be in the cave. There she is with her four people again. And in the center of this water pool with eight, four, and the points between, eight uh, inflowing uh, waterways, in the center of it is the pole star. What is below is above. She's at the abyss and she gets the pole star at the summit of the heavens. The next then is a picture of the heavens and a very strange one too because you have the Big Dipper and the pole star but also the Southern Cross. Let's say she's beyond the pairs of opposites again. Now begins something really to happen. Instead of that sort of fake burial that was represented earlier, she now finds fire, the burning up, the um, incineration of the, of the mortal uh, life. And all these workers now all over the place 
And you remember in yesterday's um, androgyne, we had the image of the analysis into the four elements. It decayed into fire, air, and water. Well, here, this is a similar thing. And then it moves real close. She is the one that's burning up. This is what was intended by that funeral, but this is the real thing. But there is another message here. In burning up like this, there comes from her right hand the seed of the grapes of the vine and the sacrament, and from her left, the seeds of wheat and the grain of the sacrament. So here is the, the, the sacrament. She herself is the Christ who is consumed, and her life becomes the sacrament. But then above that, you have the New Jerusalem idea, and above that, the heavenly spheres. Now, this is a precise duplication of the Dantean image. Uh, down here, the hell flame and the incineration, the tower of purgatory, the mountain of purgatory, and on the summit of that, the earthly paradise with Dante meeting his uh, soul's beloved Beatrice. There is the meeting her problem. And above that, then, the spheres. And then, of course, here you have the church, which is supposed to be helping us up the mountain. And Dante, with his book, saying, I suggest you read this. The um, three worlds are indicated. And when we go back, we can see them right here again. Only her hell is different from uh, the traditional hell. The traditional hell you keep burning. Her hell is a kind of purgatory. It's purging her so that the ascent to the mountain can be achieved. That's the result. This is the dark night of the soul. A heap of ashes with a question mark. <laughs> and the most lugubrious uh, rainbow you will ever have seen. Now we're going to have three wonderful mandalas. Uh, this first one was a vision, and it uh, lacked, in the first view of the vision, the central uh, element there. But this is a kind of mosaic mandala. She's been thinking, putting things together. That's the way some things ought to be. But here's the point of this kind of, of uh, analysis. Do you see the details? And the time that went into producing that constituted a meditation on the dream. The, it, the problem is not to interpret it, not to see and say what it means, but to pay attention to it. It's a dialogue between what is known and what is not known. And this brings about the long work on this brought about the arrival of the central piece. She had a dream of someone coming with the central piece and handing it to her, and then the next dream was the one that did the trick. The next dream was of a, uh, a English railroad station, possibly one of the big stations in London at this time, which had a great big dome with the trains down here puffing away. And it was at the time of the bombings of London and there was a German bomber flying through the um, railroad uh, station there. And it dropped its bomb. 
And then she had this one. Now there is the real thing. In the center is the explosion of death, the experience of death, that bite on the Achilles tendon that we've been seeing, and the radiant Tauda Pavonis, the tail of the peacock, which in um, alchemy represents the birth, the new birth, the radiant light. You've broken through the uh, valley of death to the, uh, the explosion of light and realization and the new life. And then you see also in the center there the, the encircling serpent skin center with the rainbow radiance. I call that a beautiful piece, and it, uh, it represents a beautiful moment of the psyche of illumination which comes out of the acceptance, the inevitable, um, sublime acceptance of death. After that, with the death mandala in the center, of the death element in the center, the vine. Now, that's a culminating piece. But it doesn't end this story. Now she's moving into a new, new range of problem and experience. And the piece loses its formal beauty and becomes a kind of anecdote again. She uh, had to go through a quadrangle, uh, but there's our tree, uh, to get to her analysis, I think it was. And uh, she drew this. But what is the sense of this here? It's a breakthrough to an eternal dimension. It's a dimension that doesn't fit. It's like this kind of thing, the vision of Ezekiel looking out through the wall of space to another dimension. And immediately after that, we have this picture. Uh, there, she's back in the Alps with the light <coughs> reflected on the surface and this vision of the transcendent, which reminded me immediately of that wonderful picture by uh, Hildegard von Bingen uh, of the uh, sea of light and the choirs of angels. The angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, uh, thrones, principalities, and whatnot, the nine, and in the center, the sea of light, which is the radiance of the trinity. I mean, she's done the same thing there uh, without the uh, ecclesiastical or iconographic details. And then her final picture is of her animus, now relaxed, at ease, with the wings of true flight, uh, in movement toward the transcendent. That was her last picture, but not her last dream. The last dream was of some four or five thugs that were approaching in a mugging job. And uh, in order to repel them, she held up this picture by Pisanello. And that did the trick. There is the answer to her whole problem of her own spiritual life, the virgin birth of her spiritual uh, savior, which is herself, and the two rows of the male. The young male is George, uh, slayer of the dragon, uh, doing the physical act. And the old St. John the Hermit with the bell of the sacrament of the altar uh, representing the message of the, the spiritual life. Uh, and these 
this is her solution of her, of her problem. But this business of the whole thing being in herself reminds me of this lovely little thing. It's a, a German uh, Madonna that's in the Musée de Cluny in Paris from the 16th century. And uh, they call it in, in the museum there, in Vierge Ouvrante. Open her then, and there's the whole trinity and the choirs of the angels within her. And that's as it is with each of us. And that's the counterpart of this image with which I concluded uh, our uh, event yesterday of uh, ourselves as it. It can be found within ourselves. And the inklings that come from our religious traditions, our classic traditions, and advice from psychoanalysts, our friends, these help us. Uh, but not any one of them is the guide. One has to go one's own way through the forest. And now I come to the problem of the second woman. Uh, this is a woman in the 20s. She was, she had misunderstood how old she was. When you pass a life crisis and uh, your mind says, I'm living uh, in this context of life for these aims and so forth, but your body says, no, it's another, it's another stage of life, then there will come this thing that afflicted this woman namely a sense of dry as dust. Life dried up. She was not able to follow the dynamic of her interior system. And hers was pretty close to the, uh, the uh, 22nd night there. When she came to Jung, this is the one who had been painting in Alsace, and Jung said, paint me a picture of uh, yourself how you feel and all. This is what she rendered. Stone from the waist down. Those of you who've recently read The Arabian Nights will recognize this. It starts with a young prince who's stone from the waist down. And uh, <clears throat> all of the gold, gold being the color of value, the immortal gold, which does not uh, decay or change, uh, bound in the rocks, not available to her. She's on a cold seashore, and there's a brutal wind blowing, blowing her hair back. But this business of <clears throat> the round there, that circle, made Jung think immediately of the Ouroboros. And it was this picture and this woman who started him on a um, systematic exploration of alchemical symbology as representing something that was living alive in the, uh, in the unconscious of Western man. The ecclesiastical iconography is formulated years back by other people somewhere and put upon you. But the alchemical was somehow related to the, uh, the local European experience. Her problem is that of the Ouroboros, tied in too small a circle. And what was needed was someone to break that circle. You remember I spoke of the first chakra, Muladhara, and associated it with the dragon guarding things. And you have to kill that dragon. You have to lift the head of the serpent, the uh, Kundalini serpent. And this requires an outside hero, George and the dragon. That's the same George that was at the end of the last story. Killing the dragon, releasing the virgin. 
releasing the woman from the bondage of this cave in which, she, in which her fear and anxiety uh, was pinning her. Well, she had a meeting with Dr. Jung. And just meeting a man of those dimensions and uh, gentleness and wisdom uh, served as the lightning bolt that released her. What he said was, well, you don't paint very well, so don't try to paint pictures of yourself. Just find some symbol for yourself. And the one she found was the circle there. And the, the word released her. It's remarkable. I have three or four other pictures by women who had had interviews with Jung. The first one would be one of dismal darkness, and then another, a thunderbolt, in, in something like three cases. In this case, she's released. And you'll notice the gold is no longer in the rocks, but on the surface. And those different surfaces were actually identified as specific friends she had. Having been released from her own interior cave, she was recognizing the value of friendships and acquaintances and relationships. And her life was, was beginning to be in movement. Now she had been born at midnight, and she had the feeling that a new birth was coming. And this sphere is her own integrity. And there is a serpent, which ought to be on the ground and isn't gold, something over-evaluated. It's the male image again. And you see that it's not only a serpent, but the way it's twisted there, those look like two eyes looking down. And they actually look like Jung's eyes to me. I had the pleasure of meeting the gentleman. And those are the, his eyes, whether he knew it or not. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the belt around her, she thought of as a mercurial belt, and that it was in vibration. And now comes a picture that any Freudian would know how to misinterpret. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, the, the serpent uh, delivers its message to this uterine triad thing here. The three are about to become four. Uh, it's no ordinary serpent. It's a mercurial serpent with the wings. Um, now, to interpret this for a woman in her late 50s as being, you ought to go out and get a lover, uh, would be just too crude. Uh, she has her lover already, it's Dr. Jung. And um, he's delivering to her the, the message of the masculine uh, consciousness, uh, which uh, she uh, had not uh, properly engaged. Now she's been reading Jung, and the idea of the four functions has got in here, and she wants to try to handle that. And uh, these loops, uh, winged loops, are the functions. The blue is, um, the blue is thinking. The dark uh, brown is sensation. The pink is uh, feeling. And the yellow is intuition. And she links them in their different possibilities. But what's important here is this darkness, this darkness and the radiation coming out of it. She's continuing with her Jungian reading, and has now turned to the I Ching. And uh, those four little I Ching things, over there at uh, what, what's it called 10 o'clock, and here down at 5, and, uh, or whatever it be, 7, here and here, in that order, what they are are the I Ching hexagrams numbers 16, 41, 46, and 50. Uh, 16 is enthusiasm. That was what came when the lightning bolt struck. Uh, 41 is 
um, decrease, I say, going into yourself, absorbing, contemplating. Uh, 46 is um, pressing upward, something beginning to grow in herself. And 50 is called the cauldron, uh, something cooking, real, real fire. So what she has done there is quite consciously uh, describe what she ex has experienced up to date as the stages of her uh, uh, experience. Then above you have the birds of heavenly flight. Below you have the buck of the uh, satanic Valpurgis night and the serpents crawling all about. The flower of the soul, the soul flower in the center, you notice the four petals like the Buladhara and rainbow elements. Now, without her realizing it, and this was realized only a little later, the uh, explanation of the darkness is there in that picture. It's the crabs. She had cancer and didn't know it. And in time, she was to die of cancer a couple of years later. But it was there already, and her body knew it, but she didn't. And uh, we have the lunar forms here, the full moon, the dying and uh, rising moon, serpents, and these elements. But those two crabs are the big signal there. And then, as Jung points out, there's a kind of sadness of, is overtaking her, as though the sun were setting. Um, here is her mandala, but that sun is going down, as we see in the next one. It's her, she sees the night coming, and the world she's losing, and so forth and so on. It's a, it's a life story that she didn't know she was telling. With that, you get the pitch to the outside of the center, like the, uh, in the figure that we've just seen, the uh, solar or heavenly orb above the, the Alps her own center, and this other, sending out its rainbow rays. Her, her, something in her has got this uh, disengagement theme coming in. The serpents are rather attractive here. They're quite beautifully integrated in the whole thing. Then came a shock, the Wall Street crash, and she had to come back to America. And uh, this was a culture shock. And she's trying to hold her mandala in the center of this thing. That's Fifth Avenue, there's St. Patrick's Cathedral and all that. And you can see by the automobiles, the date's 1929. <coughs> she's got the moon dark, increasing, full, decreasing. That cycle's there. Uh, herself and some specific friends. And then she finds that it's possible to link nature into the New York thing that's up the Hudson and around the 200 on Riverside. She's still at St. Patrick's Cathedral there. Uh, but there's, she's beginning to find her own center again, and then she has it with that second radiating center also operating. So now she's all in, has the problem of oriental versus occidental thinking and ideals. The orient represented by the elephant thing over here, and the occident by the uh, Caesar on his horse or something like this. Then above, 
the, the bird flight and below the uh, serpent entanglement and the darkness, the darkness. Beginning to get a floral motif and then something interesting here now. About uh, two or three weeks after, after this, keep your eye on the one o'clock one, uh, upper right. Something happened. It's like the bomb explosion. And same picture the other one did, the vine with the death in the middle. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, well, that's, that's what the explosion and the, and the vine. Then comes her final picture, which is really a triumph. It's, it's a lovely thing. And, and then uh, all the elements, there's her serpent, there's the flower, there's the higher star, and a lovely balance. And unless I'm wrong, uh, that center is just a little bit below center, isn't it? That's an important point. That's the condescension into life. If it, if it were in center, she'd go out. I have a wonderful little uh, painting by Paul Clay called Marionette Figure, a uh, marionette figure. And it's a kind of labyrinth figure that's uh, in a, in a wonderful sort of splash with all kinds of lines. There are three directions of lines, uh, diagonals, horizontal, and vertical. And the only place where all three come together is in a center, which is just below the center of the picture. Same thing you get here. And if it were up, you, you felt the figure would just disappear. So she's, she's still in the world of incarnation, and there's the, uh, the balance upward in, in the high star. I think that's a, that's a, a really splendid piece. And now against these two female systems, and um, they, they've been consistent. They've had essentially the same uh, run of images, it seems to me, once you get into the mandala section. Uh, I'd like just to present one male image. Uh, this is uh, the ceiling of Carl Jung's place in Bollingen. It's his, one, one of his uh, central mandala. And this is more like what you get in the male, uh, crystals and things of that sort, rather than the vegetal motifs. Uh, I, I wouldn't say absolutely, but uh, statistically, this is the, the sort of thing you get. Also, in, instead of gardens, you often get fortresses and, uh, and places that are both protected and at the same time of strength. <clears throat> So that would be the, uh, the women's journey that um, I thought it would be worth showing. Uh, would anyone like to talk about this a little bit? In the first one, it's less than a year. Uh, it, it, that thing went just like that. This the second one goes over a long period of years. She was over there first around 1926 or 7. Then came the crash, 29. She came back to America, and these went on, uh, oh, about uh, six years or so. so the 
Well, she became quite expert. Uh, those, those are wonderful pictures there. Uh, Thomas Mann has in the Magic Mountain a, a, a place where he says that if it's necessary for your opus, for your psychological operation to learn something, you learn it fast. Uh, and when it's just incidental, you have trouble. But I don't care what it is. If it's a language that you've got to learn in order to to achieve some kind of thing, um, you learn it. Uh, if you're doing it just so that you can surprise and start your friends, you won't. <laughs> yeah? Could you talk about some myths that this might relate to? Here are these people's lives, and here are the symbols that they that emerge from them. But are there mythic stories in different cultures that tell those same stories? Well, in the first one, I think you, you have, I suggested one mythic theme of the Ixion, you know, the impudence of ego, but also the descent into the cave. That's what that, that was all about. And the stages of illumination that, go, that come to you as you go through the different passages. And then the obstacles and the fears. And uh, then we have also the whole uh, Kundalini thing associated with that serpent, particularly that vivid, wonderful piece of being under the tree and, uh, and the uh, allure as well as the impediment. I mean, that's exactly the double, um, the six-pointed star that we had at chakra five, at chakra four. Also, the tree, the tree is the immovable point, but understood here not so much as the immovable point, but as the harmoniously living system, uh, elevated into the air as well as uh, penetrating down into the earth, absorbing the two. When we come this afternoon to the Odyssey, we see that Circe, or Kirke, uh, gives uh, Odysseus two initiations. One to the underworld, that's the roots of the tree, and the other to the island of the sun, that's the, the high consciousness. He experiences two illuminations through this um, sorceress. Um, the vine, we have that. Um, that came out, uh, the sacrament motif of, uh, uh, with the, uh, from the life and death and loving death of the Savior comes the, the substance of the spiritual food the image of the um, hell, purgatory, heaven we had there with the she burning up the uh, new Jerusalem, the spheres above. I mean, you, you, can, you can find mythic parallels all the way through here. And then the balm of death, the bite of death, and then the revelation. Uh, it just seems to be that the, these things talk. As for a specific myth that tells you exactly these stories, no. Each has gone through the forest in her own path. And how did this person, as you see, as because she was a woman, or these two people were women, then men the same thing. For instance, in the first one, it was her onlus who had to lead her into the cave and to identify with the onlus she could get into. Mm. But the man would have to disengage himself from his mother, too, and, be, and go on the trip himself. Yeah. The, the, the adventures are essentially analogous, but they're from two sides of the, uh, 
the biological androgyne. Uh, now, in the, in the myth, when it's a woman's journey, very often the fulfilling thing is her conception of the savior. She finds her consort, just as the hero finds his, his beloved, but she is the one that conceives, and that's the point. I remember hearing some woman say to a gentleman, what is really the difference between men and women? And he said, I can't conceive. <laughs> Not bad. Um, and you see, what's happened today is that uh, there's so much advertising of achievement that women now are disengaging themselves from their feminine power and wanting to engage as enemy in the male figure in the, in, the, in the world. And I've had a number of experiences with very, very strong animus-impelled uh, women. And one of the characteristics of that life is they don't know how to relate to anybody. When you get uh, linking yourself, when a male links himself to the anima and a woman to the animus and identifies with it, it is so inward-based that relationships are all in chaos. And these people are doing things to themselves that they don't understand by bad relationships. They think they're doing lovely with somebody. And then you hear that person's report of the relationship, and they say, see, never had anything like this. And um, it, it, it's, a, it's a psychological inevitability. So these women, in both cases, were in, in uh, too close an engagement with the mother. They hadn't found their own mother character. And uh, this had delayed their maturation. And the maturation comes here. In the, in the Valley Civilization, of you see both Hinduism and Buddhism, there is a natural, a nature religion, in which, uh, which we have uh, Rembrandt in the Cedriad, in which female figures are kind of integrated with the branches and trunks of the trees. That's right. There's a very, I don't have it here, there's a very interesting uh, stamped seal that shows a, a branched, double branched, Tree, and in the center is standing the goddess. And before her, there is a, uh, a male figure in reverence kneeling, and behind him, a kind of sphinx figure. This is a royal uh, motif. And then seven uh, pigtails, female figures along the base. Um, that's, that's a quite explicit uh, representation. Well, that, that's the point, that in the Indus civilization, you have the mother goddess, Bronze Age, emphasis. And then with the Vedic incoming, you have the accent then on the, the male deities. And you have, there are two kinds of female deities uh, in these big systems. One is the female who is the universe. She's it. And every major goddess in the older traditions, in the Bronze Age tradition, was an um, uh, inflection of that total goddess. And many of the Greek goddesses were of that origin. For instance, uh, Artemis is, is the total goddess. But then she becomes later specific to the goddess of the hunt and virginity. Uh, Aphrodite is the total goddess. Then she becomes specifically the inflection toward the erotic seductress 
the seductress is always the initiator. She's the one who gives you illumination. And uh, then we have the Hera, who was the total goddess and becomes the consort of Zeus. Now, Hera was a total goddess. When the Indo-European gods come in, their consorts are aspects of their power. They are really Shakti figures of the, of the gods. And it's, there are very few primary goddesses in the Indo-European in Indo system as it comes in with the warrior people. Now, in the, in the uh, Hebrew tradition, there is no goddess. The um, god himself is male and female, as at least in the chapter one, he creates man in his image, male and female creates them. Uh, but uh, the accent, the presence is male throughout, and the vocabulary is always male. Israel is the female, the bride of uh, Yahweh, you might say. Uh, the Shekinah, the operation of the divine in Israel, is, as it were, the female aspect. But um, you don't really get a goddess there. The goddess is called the abomination throughout the Old Testament. Lilith, uh, that's a folk, a folk motif. That's not in the scripture. And the, the folk identification is of Lilith with the uh, Eve of chapter 1. You see, you've got two, two Eves. Those are two totally different creations, chapter 1 and chapter 2-3. Uh, chapter 2-3 is the older one. It dates from about the 9th century B.C., but chapter 1 is a priestly text. That's from about the 3rd or 4th, not earlier than the 4th century B.C. In other words, the Greeks had already measured the distance to the moon, and this primitive uh, motif comes out. That's a deliberate archaism in, the, in chapter 1. The, um, so, man crea God creates uh, male and female in his own image. Then we have chapter 2 coming, total reverse. <clears throat> God has a garden. He needs a gardener. He creates Adam to till the garden. Adam's bored. God tries to entertain him. He creates some animals brings them to him, Adam names the animals but can't have any fun with them, puts them to sleep, brings Eve from his rib, and uh, then things get going. Um, that, that's a different Eve. So, uh, the popular association is of the first Eve with Lilith. His first, uh, that I've seen this in so many marriages. A chap marries a woman who becomes the uh, support of his life, and, uh, and then when he breaks through and he, uh, he makes a little money, he doesn't need her support anymore, uh, you get a divorce, and then he marries somebody about 20-odd years younger, and that's his little Eve, and he can push her around. So um, the whole thing is in anticipated there in the Old Testament. Anyhow, you can watch it. Yeah? Period 
an archetypal experience. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. I was just wondering, um, you all heard the Vedic um, deities are... No, I'm not hearing quite. Well, I always heard that the Vedic deities are predominantly masculine. Yes. But then, you know, if you consider the role of, of Bach or of... Um, well, the image of the cow, the mother cow in the Vedas, and the uh, and Indra releasing the water from the mountains and the caves and, and releasing the, the cattle and the streams, the, the life that comes from these mountains, always uh, in terms of streams of life, streams of milk. And uh, there's a very strong Well, there's a very strong material element in the Bible as well, even in the second, first and second verses of the book of Genesis, uh, where the breath of God broods over the waters. But you see the difference between personifying in human form and uh, then reducing to uh, elementary form the, the principle. The, the personified deities, the personified deities in the Veda are almost exclusively male. Uh, the dawn uh, is, is a female figure. There are one or two other female figures there, but all the prayers are addressed to the male figures. And uh, the translation of Vat, the word, uh, the, the, uh, the, the energy from that as female, that is a later uh, Brahmana uh, interpretation. But the, the naive uh, the hymn itself of the earlier period uh, personifies in the male form. Whereas earlier, the male, the principal personification was female. And then you had the male powers represented as animals, as goats, as serpents, as, uh, as eagles, and things of this sort. Um, this does give a shift of accent that is uh, critical and important in the structuring of the culture and of the mythology. Uh, th that would be, no, you're absolutely right. The, the female power, you don't get rid of her. She's there. <clears throat> I saw, uh, and it's this wonderful film, I think I've mentioned it already, The uh, Altar of Fire, which was made at the University of California with a lot of um, uh, scholars involved in it of an actual Vedic ritual um, that is performed in Kerala and was put in 1974 with an enormous ritual to Agni, the god of fire. And all of the activity were priests, priests, priests. There were no end of priests. And one woman behind an umbrella throughout the ceremony to represent the female power and presence. But all the action was male. And then when you turn to, I showed uh, a Cretan uh, seal there with the, the women dancing, you remember? Uh, that, that was a woman's right. You wouldn't find, I mean, women are having a hard time getting into the ministry in the Christian religion today. And I even had the bizarre experience of meeting a woman rabbi 
couple of months ago. Uh, this, this represents a, a change in the complexion of the whole religious structure that's um, now being gradually, let's, uh, let's say, uh, achieved. But the religion itself, women are not even, part they don't even participate in the ritual of the synagogue. They're up on a, on a balcony weeping most of the time. And uh, the men are performing all their performances down there, raising their pigs and letting the, the tusks go around. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. Oh, well, this is really a Gnostic figure. And um, there you have her as symbolic of the soul, which has fallen into darkness and is to be uh, rescued by the savior figure. But she represents knowledge, illumination, enlightenment, and closed in darkness to be brought forth. That's the, that's the basic Gnostic, Gnostic image. There's a lot of material coming out about that now from the Nag Hammadi uh, material. We had only some four and a half manuscripts uh, of the Gnostic up to, up to now, and an awful lot of uh, defamatory description by the, uh, the uh, Christian uh, uh, people like Cyril of Alexandria and so forth. But, um, it, it's coming out now, and I haven't put myself to it, really. Right now, I'm engaged in something else and can't get into this new material that's just come out in the past uh, 10 years or so. But uh, Sophia basically is, is divine knowledge, the illumination, which is enclosed in the darkness of the world. Now, the basic Gnostic idea was uh, dualistic that there were two powers, the light power and the dark. This comes really out of Zoroastrianism, Ahura Mazda and Angamanyu. And by violence, uh, the dark power has enclosed uh, energies of the light. And these are now in bondage here. And our world is this mixture of the two. And the goal of the savior and the goal of all religious discipline is to release the light. And the light isn't only in you and me, but the light is in the floor here and the walls and all. And uh, with that ultimate release, the world will, will collapse. The world is regarded as something that should not have been. The Savior comes down, Christianity is a lot of this. The Savior comes down to re release the light. The Manichaean heresy, uh, the Albigensian in the... Uh, 12th century in south of France uh, was, uh, was of this sort, releasing the light and the knowledge and illumination from the bondage. Now in the Gnostic, and this is one reason it had such a hard time, um, it identified the creator, Yahweh, with the power of darkness. There was he who created this world. And that um, his laws are laws to keep us in bondage to the world. And the first to offer us release from those laws was Satan in the Garden of Eden, who told Adam and Eve to disobey the law. And the second appearance of the serpent is in Jesus on the cross, through whose uh, crucifixion the veil of the temple was rent and the old law uh, broken. 
This was the Ophitic movement in the Gnostics, worshipping the serpent. And um, they take Paul as their uh, text, really, when he, when he says, with the coming of the new law, the old is, is dispelled. And the association of Saturday with Saturn, the heavy, um, the heavy planet that represents darkness and, uh, and weight, is uh, associated with this. And the reason the Christian day is Sunday is the rising of the new eastern sun, uh, the sun from the east that eliminates the darkness of Saturn. So Saturday and Sunday and all these things are involved in the early symbolism. And that rising of the sun is the release of Sophia then from the abyss and so forth. Yeah. That probably takes two of He was using Gillis Crispel, who was the uh, scholar who discovered the gospel according to Thomas, uh, regards Jesus as a Gnostic. Because Gnosticism was a Jewish movement before it became a Christian one. It was an anti-Yavist Jewish movement. And uh, the son of Jesus as the son of God, the God of whom he is the son, is not Yahweh, but the higher light, uh, which Yahweh... Uh, Occludes. Oh, it's quite a turnover of the whole system. Well, when you read the Gospel according to Thomas, it's a, this is available. It's published the Hopper, and it's uh, it's right there. It's a, if you know your Gospels pretty well, it's very interesting to read it, because you're reading the same phrases given just a little turn. And uh, the great the great key to the difference comes in the last saying in the Gospel of Thomas. You know, in Mark 13, have I spoken of this? In Mark 13, Jesus uh, pr uh, predicts the end of the world. It's supposed to be a late intrusion, actually, into the gospel. Um, how it will all be terrible, terrible, and uh, described in detail, these horrors. It's a standard apocalyptic moment. But he says, uh, this generation will not have passed away before these things have come to pass. Well, the generation did pass away, and so this is known as the great non-event. But the, uh, uh, the insistence on the part of the ecclesiastical tradition to interpret mystical symbols historically has made the church say, well, it's going to happen later. And the word generation referred to the generation of man, which will see the end of the world. It's going to be a historical event. Now you turn to the Thomas Gospel, and what you read is this. Oh, Lord, when will the kingdom come? Jesus said, the kingdom will not come by expectation. The kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. That's sheer Gnosticism. So just twist your eyes, and the world is radiant. The revealing power of Maya, the function of art, is to let you get that radiance. It's a different story. Now, it's interesting, when you have a theory like that, of the imminence in the, the world as is, you get a different kind of art from that which you, you get when there is no imminence. When there is no imminence, the art is anecdotal. It, the Buddhist art of the pre-Bahayana time tells the life of the Buddha. It's anecdotal. When you have the imminent idea, suddenly the art itself is the revelation. 
The art image is the Buddha. It is the revelation of Buddha consciousness. And it's another kind of art. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. Um, what could go on about art? Um, <laughs> the thing that interests me in Joyce, in, in the portrait of the artist as a young man, there is in the last uh, third of the book a, a marvelous exposition of aesthetic theory. And uh, Joyce there distinguishes between what he calls proper and improper art. Uh, proper art is static, improper art is kinetic. Kinetic art moves the observer either toward or away from the object. Art that moves one toward the object with desire, he calls pornographic art. Art that turns one away from the object, he calls didactic art. Uh, all advertising is pornographic art. You have a refrigerator and a beautiful smiling girl beside it, you think, I want a refrigerator like that. The uh, uh, social uh, criticism art is didactic. And most uh, novelists since the time of Zola have been didactic pornographers. But then when you turn to, uh, uh, I think what this means, you turn then to the um, static art, <coughs> there, he turns to Aquinas for his definition, there uh, are three moments. And he calls them integritas, consonantia, and claritas. Integritas is unity. Let's take this, this thing here and put a frame around any part of it you want. And then what is within that frame is to be thought of as one thing, not a collection of other things. It's one thing. And then what's important? Integritas. Next is consonantia, the harmony. What is important is whether this is here or here. The rhythmic relationship of part to part of part to the whole and the whole to each of the parts. That is the instrument of art. Rhythm. Now there's a mystery about rhythm. Why then do we experience the radiance? When the rhythm is correctly, fortunately achieved, the art object is fascinating in itself, for itself. Not because it's talking about something else. Not because it's anecdotal of something else. The portrait that's reminding you of something else, somebody else, this is a bit of pornography. You know the definition of a portrait, a picture with something wrong around the mouth. The, uh, it's not Susie's mouth. Uh, the, um, it's, it's that portrait's mouth. Uh, look at who wants to look like a Picasso. The, um, the object becomes radiant because of the rhythm. In writing, if all you want to do is communicate information, the rhythm of your prose does not matter. But if you want to engage the heart in what you're saying, watch your rhythm. Uh, the rhythm pitches you past the word. This is why poetry and so forth. So um, here you have the static revelation. The kingdom of the Father spread upon the earth and men do not see it. It's exactly the same thing. You arrange the rhythm in such a way that you experience the radiant Father. Um, there's a saying of Cezanne that seems to me to give the answer to what is the mystery of rhythm? He says, art is a harmony parallel to nature. And the nature is not the visible nature. It's the nature of your own depth, which is the nature of the outer depth as well. This is what art's about. But then look at the other side. What about kinetic? 
desire and loathing, are those not the temptations of the Buddha? So don't we have the same story going here in the artwork and the still point, the immovable point of the Buddha consciousness? I don't know how I got off on this, but... Um, <laughs> oh, that, uh, yes, the, uh, the difference between the historical reading, the anecdotal reading, you might say, of a symbol, and the mystical, which is the aesthetic way. All the great scriptures were rendered by artists. We call them prophets, we call them rishis, but they are people who heard the violin of death. I think that's the big theme of all this. You can, by the artist's eye and the rhythmic arrangement, turn the obscuring power of Maya into the revealing power. And, uh, and then the whole world sings. The muse of bucolic nature talks to you, and so forth and so on. Well, I should be quiet now. I see the date here is uh, 10.30 and it's 10.45, so that's this morning. So thank you. Professor Campbell began this lecture by saying there will be two installments, the second having to do with Odysseus, and the first, which he was about to dive into, focused on the heroine's journey. In this lecture, he refers to the hero's journey as, quote, the visionary journey, unquote. Now, this isn't a phrase he commonly associates with the hero's journey, although he does frequently invoke the word visionary to describe the work of Thomas Mann, and James Joyce. The visionary aspect he refers to is the ability to cultivate an inner vision that places one in relationship to the symbolic nature of life and leads one down the heroic path, while simultaneously enabling one to grasp a little better, contemplate a little longer, and make more use of the images of the unconscious. But in this instance, I think Campbell is using the word visionary for a very particular reason. Uh, but in order to explain why, we need to know something about the American woman who he describes as seeking out Jung in 1920 Zurich. The second of the two women Professor Campbell mentioned is Christiana Morgan, a remarkable young woman who was an important yet little-known figure in Jung's life in the 20s, and was a tremendously influential person in his evolving theoretical orientation. Morgan was considered to be a, quote, lay psychoanalyst, unquote. And in concert with her lover, Harvard psychologist Henry Murray, developed the thematic apperception test, a projective test that I imagine is still in some use even today. I, for example, was trained in this test when I was a doctoral student in psychology in the late 80s and early 90s. The test depicts people in rather prosaic interactions, and the patient is to supply the scene with a narrative from which one might then ascertain unconscious motivations or beliefs or fears or other concerns about the person's life. Morgan's biographer, Claire Douglas, who is also a Jungian analyst, wrote, quote, that Morgan's visions depicted a way of development that was far ahead of the traditionally feminine one of her era. It was a woman's heroic quest, 
the type of quest Morgan may have been the first to envision, unquote. Morgan was unafraid of her sexuality and seemed drawn to remarkable intellectually and, unfortunately, generally unavailable men. As a young woman, she was a lover of Chaim Weitzman, who became Israel's first president. She also had affairs with the writer Lewis Mumford, and it seems she also had an affair with the brilliant philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. But always, for good or for ill, until the end of her life, there was Henry Murray. The brilliant Harvard psychologist, who in addition to being an original theorist in his own right, was almost single-handedly responsible for renewing interest in Herman Melville's preposterously neglected novel, Moby Dick. A reviewer of Douglas's Morgan biography said of Christina's affair with Murray that, quote, it ended not as the grand affair they both imagined, but something tragically mundane, a mental tussle fueled by sadomasochism and alcohol. In March 1967, drunken, depressed, and with Murray's love turning to loathing, Morgan drowned herself in the sea off St. John's Island in the Caribbean. She was 70 years old, unquote. Now back to Campbell and that word visionary. We've already heard Morgan's biographer call her visions descriptive of a woman's heroic quest. And between 1930 and 1934, C.G. Jung gave a series of lectures, of which Campbell was no doubt aware, that have been come to be known as the Vision Seminars, and were based on Morgan's experiences, descriptions, and paintings of her inner vision quest and archetypal encounters while she was in analysis with Jung. Jung had a significant countertransference to Morgan and seemed to view her as what he called an anima woman, un femme inspiratrice, whose role it was to act as a muse to great men. The inner vision quest, the encounter with the inner archetypes, is ideally meant to free oneself and bring one's own fullness of being, all of one's talents, all of one's skills and intellectual force, one's diamond, we might say, into the world and become in some fashion materially realized. If that is not supported by the analyst, if a woman is seen only as an apparatus to inspire and bring forth into the world the genius of men, well, that's simply intolerable, psychically speaking, for any woman. Morgan's biographer criticizes her for getting in the way of her own gifts and visions, but really, one can't escape the fact that Miss Morgan was constantly finding herself in relationship to men who overwhelmed her, who fed off her creativity and absorbed her into their own personalities. The other woman Campbell mentioned, who was featured in Jung's book, Symbols of Transformation, was another extremely interesting woman that history or at least the male gaze hasn't really seen in her entirety. In Campbell's lecture, she remains anonymous, and even Jung thought her name, Frank Miller, was a pseudonym. She was also beautiful, a writer, a journalist, and a stage performer who gave speeches in which she pretended to be various historical and cultural figures. 
Jung did not know her personally. He was only familiar with her from reading an account of her poems, Reveries and Visions, in a book written by Theodore Flournoy, and got some details about Miss Miller wrong. Her name was not, as Jung supposed, a pseudonym. She was named after her father. Jung diagnosed her fantasies as, quote, the prodromal stages of schizophrenia, unquote and predicted she would eventually suffer a full schizophrenic breakdown. She did not. Jung's work with her story involved a great deal of projection on his part, just as his work with Christiana Morgan evoked powerful counter-transferences. In fact, Jung said as much later in his life, and I'm quoting here, I took Miss Miller's fantasies as an autonomous form of thinking, but I did not realize at that time that she stood for that form of thinking in myself. She took over my fantasy and became the stage director of it. To put it even more strongly, passive thinking seemed to me such a weak and perverted thing that I could only handle it through a diseased woman. And so I assimilated the Miller side of myself, which did me much good. I found a lump of clay, turned it to gold, and put it in my pocket. I got Miller into myself and strengthened my fantasy power by the mythological material. A diseased woman. A lump of clay. Quite the characterizations of someone whom Jung has never even met, let alone worked with clinically. Jung acknowledged that his dive into Miller's fantasies was undertaken by his own wish to analyze the same or similar contents of his own psyche, which he had not yet admitted to himself. Symbols of Transformation was first published in 1912. Jung begins his own, quote, confrontation with the unconscious, unquote, in 1913, after his split with Freud, and recorded these investigations into his own psyche in what would become to be known as the Red Book, a book Jung never intended for publication. In his introduction to the Red Book, Sanu Samdashani writes, Jung came to realize that transformations and symbols of the libido could be taken as myself, and that an analysis of it leads inevitably into an analysis of my own unconscious process. He had projected his material onto that of Miss Frank Miller, whom he had never met. Now, the Red Book may be viewed as Jung's response to what he saw as the inadequacies of the hero myth, which he explored at length in Symbols of Transformation. The Red Book is a strange and beautiful text It's filled with beautiful paintings, a gothic text, and an elaborate, sometimes dramatic language. Reading it, or merely browsing through it, one has the inescapable sense that one is being presented with a nearly unmediated glimpse into the psyche, in particular, Jung's psychic reality. So back to Campbell's lecture. Later on, he states that women tend to associate themselves with trees, flowers, and the vegetal world in general. That the female equates to life and birth, and the male to the agent, as Campbell puts it, 
who prepares a field to operate within and helps the female achieve the aim of the whole biological system, which is her work, unquote. Now, in fairness to Campbell, he seems to be attempting to honor the feminine by placing her at the center of everything and acknowledging that without her, the whole human enterprise comes to naught. Furthermore, in other places, Campbell has noted Quote, the female power must be recognized to make possible a proper relationship, what I call an androgynous relationship, in which the male and the female meet as co-equals. Prior to the consciousness-raising efforts of the women's movement, it was common for academic disciplines to link women to their biology. Tying women to their biology is problematic, to say the least, In her brilliant and now classic 1974 essay, Is Female to Male as Nature is to Culture? Sherry Ortner argues that women have been seen as the symbol of something every culture demeans and determines to be of less value than the culture itself. She writes, Every culture is engaged in the process of generating and sustaining systems of meaningful forms, parentheses, symbols, artifacts, etc., by means of which humanity transcends the givens of natural existence, bends them to its purposes, controls them in its interest. We may thus broadly equate culture with the notion of human consciousness or with the products of human consciousness, i.e., systems of thought and technology, by means of which humanity attempts to assert control over nature. Women, Ortner argues, come to symbolize nature because bodily functions like childbirth and menstruation seem to suggest a closer relationship to the rhythms of nature than does a man's biology, which in fact seems to free him from nature so that he may engage in the enterprise of building culture. Also, childbearing often leads to social roles that are domestically oriented, roles that are deemed to be of a lower order And as a result, women are often granted a lower order of cultural esteem. And here I quote Ortner again. In other words, woman's body seems to doom her to mere reproduction of life. The male, in contrast, lacking natural creative functions, must, or at least has the opportunity to, assert his creativity externally, quote-unquote artificially, through the medium of technology and symbols. In so doing, he creates relatively lasting, transcendent objects, while the woman creates only perishables, human beings, Now, I recall that, as if in some foreshadowed affirmation of Ortner's thesis, William Faulkner once said that, quote, the ode on a Grecian urn is worth any number of old ladies, unquote forgetting for a moment, perhaps, that those old ladies gave birth to the poets and the writers that created the odes and urns, for that matter. Perhaps most salient, though, for this discussion is the belief that culture must subdue and dominate nature, which, if women are identified with nature, leads to the false conclusion that men must similarly dominate women. But as I said earlier, I don't find Professor Campbell to be consciously misogynistic. 
He makes the move in this lecture to try to go beyond gender. He remarks, after making some commentary on the dreams described in Symbols of Transformation, that, quote, your God is your final bondage, unquote. We tend to use this word God as if there were a literal correlate to the word, but the word God is simply a placeholder word, a word that we employ to place ourselves in some kind of relationship to, while allowing us to evade the problematic questions regarding the distorting, ineffable, indescribable powers that shape life and living. In elaborating on the your God is your final bondage remark, he takes care to point out that what you must, quote, kill is not only your lowest parts, but your highest too, your animals and your gods, unquote. In other words, we have to transcend our tendency to think in pairs of opposites, including, in this case, gender. Campbell says, the creativity comes in going past all these formulas that have been given to you. And later, he says, the adventures are analogous, just from two different perspectives. He ultimately drives home the point that regardless of gender, the hero's journey consists of a psychological move into one's own depths with the goal to retrieve deadened feeling, integrate scattered, compartmentalized self-knowledge, and to emerge more whole, more self-directed, more generously disposed to the conditions of living and to life itself, even in its threatening aspects as well as its drudgery. In the book Pathways to Bliss, Campbell points out that, quote, the adventure is always reckless, and that goes even for the simple things I do. The drudgery of housework, or rewriting a book, or riding a subway home after an exhausting day's work can become heroic acts. This is when you bring that factor of love in, Campbell says. As long as doing the dishes is not regarded as an act of love, or a physical manifestation of loving the life you have, doing the dishes feels oppressive. But, and I'm quoting Campbell here, when you love the dishes and you think about what they mean in your life, your family sustenance, then it's all transformed into metaphor and you're free, unquote. And that freedom, after all, is the entire raison d'etre for the heroic journey in the first place. Thank you for listening to our MythMaker Podcast Network series, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. It is an honor and a pleasure for me to spend a few hours each month with you, taking a deep dive into Campbell's lectures and his truly fascinating scholarship. Also, I'd encourage you to please check out another JCF podcast offering, The Podcast with a Thousand Faces. You can find that podcast on iTunes or at jcf.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. On that podcast, we interview peoples who, whose lives have been influenced by the study of myth, particularly Campbell's work. For instance, I had the pleasure last month of interviewing Thomas More for our June episode, and I hope you'll check it out. And there's just one other piece of news at the Joseph Campbell Foundation I'd like to share 
Beginning this month, we're launching our Skeleton Key Study Guide series. The first release will be a study guide companion to Goddesses, Mysteries of the Divine Feminine. Not accidentally, or at least not entirely coincidentally, much of what Campbell has to say about the feminine and the heroine's journey can be found in this text. These study guides are much more than Cliff Notes versions of the texts. They include truly marvelous explorations, commentaries, and evocative questions that invite you to go more deeply into Campbell's work. So thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next month with another Joseph Campbell lecture on the Joseph Campbell Foundation's podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer John Booker. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Tyler Lapkin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.